Well, welcome today. So glad to have you here. Uh, I made a significant mistake a couple of weeks ago. I agreed to go to Costco on a Sunday afternoon. The place was a gong show. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, people, what are you all doing here? Don't you have any place better to be? Of course, they might have thought the same thing about me, but it turns out that the place was so busy that, uh, that there wasn't even a single parking stall in that massive parking lot. And so New and I decided that we would like divide and conquer. She would risk her life going into the Costco to get whatever it is that we were going to stop by to get. And I would risk my life by circling the parking lot trying to find a parking stall. After about 10 minutes of circling, I couldn't find a parking stall anywhere. So I went over to Home Depot because you can never go wrong going to Home Depot. And, uh, and then she called me. She said, okay, I'm ready. Okay, so then I drove back into the parking lot and I was driving down this lane between these cars parked so I could turn at the road to go past the Costco. And as I did, I didn't see a car coming this way and I had to stop like short, like just like that. That's it. Nothing more, no, no, nothing more. But as that car crawled by with lots of space between me and that car, the, the lady in the passenger seat looked at me and gave me a look of death. Like as if I had tried to get that little mutt in the back seat of their car out and drive over it with my car several times, which I didn't. But I mean, there was, I mean, there was no, there was no screeching of tires. There was no swerving. There was no, there was no, you know, there was no crunching metal. It was a little mistake. It's all. But there was also no grace at all. You know, we live in a world where there's so little grace. You know, people are so quick to criticize, so quick to condemn, so quick to, to look down upon others. And, and, and that's just for the little things in life. The question is, where, where do we find grace for the, the, the real issues in our life? For the brokenness, for the, the big mistakes, for the insecurities and the fears and the, and the burdens that we bear. Where do we find that kind of grace? Well, today we're starting a series uh, in the Gospel of John. We're picking up from where we left off last fall uh, in John chapter 5. And at the end of the Gospel of John, John explains why he wrote this Gospel. He, he says this. He says, uh, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, he comes to the end of this gospel. He says, look, I could have told you all kinds of other miracles that Jesus did. I mean, there were tons that I could have told you. But the ones that I chose to tell you, the ones that I specifically picked to recount in this biography of Jesus' life were for a very specific reason. Because they tell you something very, very important about who Jesus is and what he's all about. And so the miracle that we're going to look at today, the, the one that we're going to, the story we're going to pick up at the beginning of John chapter 5 tells us that the place that you will find grace in your life, that the place you find grace in your circumstances, in your brokenness and in your struggles, the place where you find grace for your sense of who you are, that place is in Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. If not, the, the, the verse will be on the screen here. And John begins by explaining that, that this story, this miracle takes place at a pool. In fact, here's what he writes. 
Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So John gets really specific. He says, look, there's this pool. It's by the Sheep Gate. It had five covered colonnades. We would say five, five decks with a, with, a, with a cover over them so you could sit in the shade by the pool. Sounds like a really nice place. And in fact, this is the kind of detail that John gives in his gospel that led scholars back in the 18th and 19th century to begin to, to check out if the gospels actually were historically accurate. And, and a number of the liberal scholars zeroed in on this particular verses that we looked at and said, oh, the, the writer of this gospel describes this pool and apparently it was a, a five-sided pool because it had, uh, you know, five porches around it, five covered porches, and, uh, and it was near the sheep gate and, and uh, the, the writer talks about it, but we can't find that. In fact, there's no record anywhere in, in the ancient antiquity of this kind of a pool. And this, <coughs> excuse me, there's no record ever of a five-sided pool and archaeology hasn't found it. And so what they concluded, what they said was, oh, therefore, clearly, the Gospel of John was not written by a contemporary of Jesus. Clearly, it was written by someone who hadn't even been in Jerusalem. They were just making it all up, except that they were wrong. It turns out that when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's incredibly accurate books that they had discovered from that time, uh, that it made reference to the Pool of Bethesda. And what's more, uh, when they did more archaeological study, they found that in the 12th century, somebody had decided to build a church on top of where this pool was. So you couldn't just bulldoze the church to, to find the pool. And now, of course, they have removed the church somehow, and they, they found these pools. And what they found was not a five-sided pool. There is no such thing. They found two pools, twin pools, with a, with a, a, a wall in between meaning that there was a porch on four sides of these twin pools and one down the middle, exactly the way John described it. And what's more, they discovered that that pool had been destroyed when Jerusalem was raised in the, in the year AD 70, meaning that anyone who was in Jerusalem after that date would have no recollection, no experience with that pool whatsoever, which means that the Gospel of John was clearly written by a contemporary of Jesus. The, the irony is that the very verses that they tried to use to say, you can't trust this, actually proves that you can. It was written by John about a very real place. And he says, at, the, at that pool, when, when you went there, there was all kinds of, uh, of, of people that had uh, disabilities. There was, there was the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. And they were there, he explains, because the water would, would stir once in a while. We don't know why. Maybe there was an under, underwater current or something like that. And when it stirred, they thought that there was an angel there and that if you could get into the water, you could be healed. And so what, what John describes is this very real place with very real people that have very real needs. And this is the place that Jesus comes. Jesus comes to where the weak and the struggling and the helpless are, which is very different than pretty much any other religion or philosophy in the world. 
Most of the other religions of the world say, look, if you want to be right, if you want to find wholeness, if you want to find health, you have to be strong. You have to, you have to, you know, do the right things. You have to earn favor with God so that you can be accepted by him. You have to keep the rules. And it isn't just other religions that have this kind of mindset. Much of our culture holds the same mindset, even though they wouldn't put themselves as religious. But they'd say the same thing. If you want to be whole, if you want to be fulfilled, if you want to, if you want to have freedom in your life, then you have to follow your heart. You have to make your own breaks. You have to, you have to, um, uh, you have to be the best you you can be. You have to lean in. You have to earn the approval of and the applause of the people around you so that you know that you are a success in this life. It's the same philosophy as the other religions, just minus God. And even sometimes among Christians, we have a tendency to lean this way. You know this expression, God helps those who help themselves? You know where it says that in the Bible? Nowhere. Because that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Unlike all the other religions or philosophies of the world, Christianity is never about earning God's favor or our other's favor. It's rather about grace. Jesus doesn't come to a pool where the Pharisees are lounging in their fine clothes and drinking their fine cocktails and, you know, served by waiters and acting like their life is all together, even though it's just as much a wreck as anyone else's. They just pretend that it isn't. He doesn't show up there. No, no. Jesus shows up at the pool where there are all these people who are blind and lame and paralyzed. He comes to a place where people know that they are broken and know that they need healing, but also realize that they can't do it on their own. A blind man can hardly find his way into the pool. The lame man can barely drag himself in. The paralyzed person needs someone to help him get in and out. They can't heal themselves. And they know it. And often that's the case for us too. Maybe it's the case for you. Certainly it's the case for me. You know, I, I, I try not to like stand up here and look like a total wreck all the time. But, but if you get to know me, if, if you, you know, the more you get to know me, if you, if you work with me or if, if you're one of my friends or, or if you're my family or if you're my dear wife, you know that I got all kinds of quirks. But more than quirks, I got issues, right? I mean, there are things that I, there are fears in my life. There are insecurities that, that I struggle with. There, there are, uh, you know, these regrets that, that I have in my life that I just can't seem to fix on my own, no matter how hard I try. I can't make them go away. Contrary to what the culture says, I can't seem to heal myself. I can't be good enough. I can't be good enough to always earn all, the, all the, the approval that I need to make me feel like as if I'm like somebody. And maybe you know that same kind of thing. You see, this is, this is where Jesus comes into the scene and he's just utterly different from everyone else. Jesus says, I didn't come. I didn't come to call those who think that they're righteous, who, who think that they have it all together. I came to call those who know that they're sinners, who know that they're broken. The Apostle Paul in, in Romans 5, 6 says that while we were still powerless, 
while we were still weak and unable to do it on our own and, and helpless and, and feeble and incapable, when we were still powerless, that's when Christ died for us. The message of the gospel is unlike any other. The message of the gospel is that salvation, that healing, new life, freedom, wholeness, all of those things that we long for come by grace and by grace alone. You don't have to earn it because you could never earn it. You can't fix yourself. I mean, if you're lame, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't get up and walk. If you're blind, it doesn't matter how much you dream about seeing, you can't make yourself see. If you're paralyzed, it doesn't matter how much you visualize being able to walk, you will never be able to do it on your own. And if you're broken on the inside, if you have these demons that torment you, if you have these regrets that won't let you go, if you're always trying to prove yourself to yourself and to everyone else that you are worthy, that, that, that you are good enough to deserve their approval, you will never be able to do it. You can't. You need a healer. You, you need a savior. You need someone who comes to you not with a motivational speech, not with another set of standards, not with a like, you can do it. Rather, you need someone who comes to you with grace and who says, I can do it. I can heal you. And this is who Jesus is. This is what he's all about. And, and this is the first point that John wants us to see by telling us this particular story. And that's this, that Jesus offers grace to real people in real places. See, what John tells us here are not fables. They're not inspirational stories to help us try to, to you know, work harder, to, to find it within ourselves. No, no, no. What, what he tells us is a story about a real people with real issues who encounter the living God. So Jesus goes to the pool with five decks and he begins to pick his way among all of these people who are, who are blind and lame and paralyzed. And, and this is what John tells happens next. In verse 5, he says this. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So Jesus in the midst of all of these people, he comes to this guy, he finds out he's been there for 38 years. And his question is this, do you want to get well? It's kind of an odd question, right? I mean, look at your condition, look at where you are. But it turns out that not everyone that looks like they want healing actually wants healing. In fact, in the ancient world, sometimes you could make a better living not being healed than you could being healed. And the same is true today. You know, sometimes people don't actually want to be healed. They, they do, of course, but, but not really. I mean, they don't love the bitterness and the, and, the, and the unforgiveness in their life, and they will tell you that, except for that, it, it kind of feels comfortable to them, and, and they're actually not that willing to let it go. Or they will tell you that they don't like the pace of life. They, they don't like the constant pressures, that it's exhausting and wearing them out, and, and they wish they could get off the treadmill, but... But they don't really. They actually like being on the treadmill because, 
Because it gives them this sense of, of importance and value and, and, and self-worth that comes from continually being busy and, and constantly, you know, being involved in all kinds of things and, and finding favor and approval through that. Or they tell you that they want God in their life, but, but they don't really because, because deep down they're, they're fearful that, that, that if that if they give their life to God, if they give control of their life over to him, that he will steal their joy and take away their freedom and that he will make their life a drudgery and a misery. And so they kind of do want God in their life, but not, not really. That's why Jesus comes and asks. He says, do you want to be healed? Do you really want freedom from whatever that thing is that is causing you burden? and struggle and heartache in your life. Do you want to be healed? Because if you genuinely do, Jesus wants to heal you. And, and the other thing to note in this story is fascinating that Jesus comes to us, we don't go to him. I mean, Jesus comes into this pool with many people who are sick and disabled and many who have burdens and, and heartaches. And as he picks his way among them, no one calls out to him. No one says, hey, hey, Jesus, come, come. Hey, do this for me. No, no, he goes to that man. He, he comes to us. And see, this is one of the principles in the Bible and that, that, it, that the Bible teaches us. And that's this. If you find God, it's because God came looking for you. It's because of his incredible grace for you. See, in Romans chapter 3, Paul is writing to this group of Christians in the city of Rome, and he's explaining that, that everyone is a sinner. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. He says, no one is good. And then he adds this line. He says, and no one seeks God. No one. Now, you say, well, wait, wait, Paul, come on. I mean, there's all kinds of people who are seeking a spiritual reality, who are seeking after God. What do you, how can you say that no one seeks God? And you're right. People do seek God, but not the true God. The kind of God that people naturally seek, that we would naturally seek if God didn't come to us, was a God that we made in our image. A God that we uh, would have serve us rather than us having to serve him. A God that, a God that we could control. But no one, not in their own, on their own, seeks the true God because, because then we have to acknowledge that he created us in his image. And therefore, we owe our lives to him. Therefore, our lives are about serving him and not him serving us. And so no one seeks God in that way. Plus, as I pointed out, often we secretly think, or sometimes not so secretly think, that if we give our lives to him, that he will return that, that, that our willingness to do that with, with misery and enslavement and rules and hardship rather than with real life, rather than with grace. And so no one looks for God. It's God who always comes looking for us. It's kind of like, I mean, if I think of an example, it's kind of like uh, uh, the family work weekend at Camp Quanos that our family started going to. If you're not familiar, Camp Quanos is this camp that our, our church is closely connected to over on the island. It's a kid's camp. And uh, a number of years ago, some friends of ours said to us, hey, and this is before we knew about Camp Quanos, they said, hey, we found this family camp where you can go for free. And we said, free? Family camp with the kids? Yeah, of course we're in. 
And they said, it's, it's the family work weekend. We said, I'm, I'm sorry? Well, they said, it's the family work weekend, but it's free. You should come. We said, oh, okay. Sounds good. So when we got there, we knew that there would be some work to do. But we thought like, you know, two or three hours in the morning, a little bit of cleaning, two or three hours in the afternoon, a little bit more, you know, carry a few things, maybe mow a little patch of lawn and, and then lots of time in between to rest and relax and drink hot chocolate and sit by the beach. Except for that on Saturday morning at 8.30, the work began. And oh my goodness, there was work to do. I mean, it's a big camp. It's a massive camp. And man, we worked like crazy all day long. In fact, at lunchtime, when I showed up, my wife had been working in another place. She looked at me with these wide eyes. I looked at her and she said, what did we sign up for here? This is crazy. These people meant it when they said work. And you know, we would have never on our own chose that. I mean, if we go to the website and say, honey, why don't we go to this camp? It looks really good. There's a family fun weekend. There's there's, uh, there's uh, open house fun weekend. There's men's fun retreat weekend. There's women's fun re- re- retreat, re- retreat. And there's family work weekend. Honey, why don't we pick the one that's all about work? I mean, we would have never done that. It was God's grace that these people said, hey, you should come with us. Because it turns out that we loved it. You know, I, I have a job. I work all week, but mostly it's sitting at a desk. It was so good to get out and work with my hands. They let me use like power tools all over the place. It was, it was a lot of fun. And my kids got a chance to work. And, and this is a, a, a value that we wanted to instill in them, to, to serve others, to, to not just consume. And, and, uh, and we met uh, uh, other families that were also had the same values and, and were teaching their kids the same things and, and believed in the vision and the value of, the, of, of what they were doing at that camp. And... And in the evenings, uh, on Friday night and on Saturday night and on Sunday, man, we had such fun and, and the kids fell in love with camp and, and it was deeply fulfilling. It was really rich. We went back for six or seven years in a row to be involved in the family work weekend, but we would have never chosen it on our own. It was grace that someone came to us and said, let's do this. And you know, on our own, we don't choose God. It's his grace that he comes and he chooses us. It's a principle that, that runs through the scriptures. In John 6, Jesus says this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And Acts 16, 14 says this, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And again, in 1 John 4, 19, it says this, we love because he first loved us. Listen, if God is at work in your life, if God is calling you, if God is coming and saying, I want to bring healing into your life, it's because of his grace. It's because he has specifically chose you and found you and wants to bring healing into your life. If you want that healing, if you're willing to receive it. The the lame man gets this invitation, but he misunderstands. He says, oh, oh yeah. Of course, the the problem, he says to Jesus, I can't get into the pool when it it starts to surge. So maybe you could help me get into the pool. That'd be really nice. 
He misunderstands the source of healing. And this is often the case for us as, as Christians too. When we, we hear Jesus saying, yeah, I want to bring healing in your life, we misunderstand. We say, oh, okay. Okay, well, well, Jesus, if only you could help me find Mr. or, or Ms. Right. If, if you would just find, help me find that person, then finally I'd be fulfilled and satisfied. But then if you're married, you're like, oh, I thought I had Mr. or Ms. Right, but they're just almost right. So Jesus, if you would just correct a few things in them, then I would finally be satisfied. Then I would be fulfilled completely. Or we say, well, Jesus, if you would just help me with my career, or if you would just help me get a better job, or if you would just help me get more money, then I would find what I'm looking for. And, and we miss it. We, 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 we misunderstand what Jesus is offering because the healing isn't in that. The fulfillment isn't in that. It's in Jesus. It's in him that we find the strength and the, and the satisfaction and, and all that we need. The fulfillment that we're looking for in this life. And see, this is the second point that John is making in telling us this story. The healing is not found in any other place. The healing comes from Jesus. That's the place. So here's what happens. Verse 8. Then Jesus said to the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. That once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So Jesus heals this man miraculously, brilliantly. And he says, okay, go home. Pick up your mat and go home. Except that it was the Sabbath. And so here's this man carrying this mat on the Sabbath and the religious leaders catch up with him and say, what are you doing? And they, and they, they utterly miss the fact that a man who was lame at this pool with all these others suddenly is walking out of the pool carrying his mat. And they focus instead on the fact that he's carrying the mat. He's breaking the Sabbath. But not what God said. I mean, God said they have a rest, but, but these guys, they made up like 39 different rules of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath and what you could. And they'd taken what was a gift from God, what was a, a good gift to the people of God, and, it, and, and instead turned it from a joy and a beautiful thing to a drudgery and an enslavement. And one of the things that you were not allowed to do was to carry a mat on the Sabbath. And so as... Jesus said in another place, they, they had strained a gnat and swallowed a camel. Their response was not, wow, you're healed, but rather, who said you could do this? And, and often this is the way. You know, when Jesus heals us in our life, it comes with all this grace. We were no longer under all these kind of rules that, that, would, that would bear us down. And yet those who who make the rules come and say, who, who said you could do this? Who gave you the permission to do this? I mean, the unspoken rule is that you should always look out for yourself above everyone else. Survival of the fittest. You put you first because no one else is looking out for you. It's a lot of pressure in life. And Jesus says, you want to be healed? You want peace? You want to find satisfaction? then give your life away and then you will find it. 
Serve others instead of seeking to be served. And, and this is the grace not to have to conform to the pressures of the culture around us, to the rules that they make. The unspoken rule is that you should measure your success by continually comparing yourself to those around you. To those who are on the same career trajectory. To, to, to other parents and their perfect little families that seem much more perfect than yours. To, to those who, uh, to your neighbors who have a new boat and a new pool in their, in their backyard. And Jesus says this. Do you want to be healed from the constant striving to, to find your worth somewhere else? To find your worth only in comparison to others around you? Then seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. They'll sort themselves out. They'll, they'll come in their own way, in their own time, but without all that, that pressure in your life that you're always competing quietly against everyone around you. It's a grace not to have to conform to the rules of the culture around you. The unspoken rule is that when you're hurt, when someone takes advantage of you, that you either seek revenge or you just live with the bitterness in the world with you. And the revenge is the, is the optimal choice, even though it costs you more, even though it caused more chaos and heartache in their lives and maybe yours, but it's the way to go. And Jesus says, you want to be healed from your, from your bitterness? You, you want to be healed from that anger that just seems to linger just underneath the surface all the time and bubbles up in all kinds of weird and, and strange places in your life? then you should forgive. And if you really want healing, you should love your enemies. You should do good to those who hurt you. And you should leave vengeance up to God because he's actually much better at it than you would ever be. This is grace that Jesus offers to be able to let go so that whatever they did to you doesn't just damage you at the beginning but, but doesn't continue to burn you up for days or weeks or months or years afterwards. It's a grace. But the, the culture pushes back against that kind of grace. They say, who told you you could live that way? Who gave you permission not to find your value in how much stuff you have? Who gave you the right to find peace in God who made you rather than in the title that is on your business card or the kind of truck that you drive to work? Who said you could find your hope in something greater than the Western capitalist dream of a, of a, a, a little white house with a picket fence and 2.5 kids? I mean, who released you from the need to constantly compare yourself to everyone else? Because those are the things that we use to control you. Those are the things that we keep, that use to keep you dancing to our tune. Those are the ways that we make you spend more. Work harder. Strive all the time. It's interesting, isn't it? Here's the, here's the third thing that we see happening in this story, and that's this culture pressures you to resist the grace of God in your life. You can't take up your mat and walk. I mean, who told you that you could do that? The answer is Jesus did. He said that I could have this freedom. He set me free from this. So, 
The religious leaders put pressure on this man. Who said you could do this? And so Jesus actually circles back to find him. And he has this, this really interesting warning that he gives to him. Look at what he says in, um, in verse uh, 13. Oh, verse 14, sorry. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and he said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Wow. Jesus always saying these things that just kind of keep us a little off guard. What, what, what are you saying exactly here, Jesus? And we don't know exactly. I mean, maybe he's saying to, to this man, he's saying, look, whatever you did last time caused this great harm in your life. Don't do it again. But it's probably more likely that he's saying this. Look, you've been healed physically. But the real healing comes when you're healed spiritually. So, so leave your life of sin and begin to follow God wholeheartedly. Now, whether it was one or the other, the fact of the matter is Jesus gives a very sober warning to us. He says, stop sinning. Don't do it. It'll cause chaos and harm and pain in your life. I mean, the, the greatest enemy in your life, the greatest enemy to the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that you want in your life is sin. Jesus says, don't do it. Flee from it. Now, whether this man took Jesus' warning or not, it's not really clear from this story. What is clear is that after having met Jesus, he goes back and finds the religious leader and says, oh, you know who told me to take up my mat and walk? This man named Jesus. So it wasn't really that helpful for Jesus. And here's what happens. In verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Religious leaders find Jesus and they say, you're breaking the Sabbath. By what authority do you do this? And Jesus answers like, well, my father in heaven is doing it and he's not sinning. So because I'm his son, it's fine for me to do it well as, as well. And we don't realize it, but, but Jesus is making a profound, profound statement there. Because you see, the, the rabbis in that day taught that, that the only person who could work on the Sabbath and not sin was God himself. Because after having created the earth in six days, he rested from creating, but he went to work right away for sustaining the world. Because if he didn't, if he stopped for a second, the world would cease to exist. In fact, in the Sabbath rest, what God was doing was not only sustaining the world, but he was also giving new life. He was restoring life. So they'd point out, they'd say, well, babies are born on the Sabbath. New life comes. The, the rains fall on the Sabbath, bringing growth to the, the crops and, the, and, and, and giving flourishing to the world around us. So God, his work on the Sabbath is to sustain and to restore and renew life. And so Jesus says, well, if that's what my father is doing, then I'm doing the same thing and it shouldn't be a problem. Now, this, this, this set the, the, the religious leaders off like crazy because Jesus was in essence claiming that he was God. And indeed he is claiming that thing, that very thing. But he's saying much more. He's saying this, if God's work on the Sabbath is to restore and renew, then that's my work too. 
And, and, and that's what, what I am about. In fact, Jesus is saying something much deeper about the Sabbath. If, God, if that's what God is about doing, then, then the Sabbath is about giving life. It's about finding true rest, the, the kind of, a kind of rest behind the rest. You remember in the Old Testament that, that when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, God said, when you enter into the promised land, you will enter into your rest, into my rest, actually. He says, in other words, he says, look, when you enter into the land that I called you to, that I promised you, you will come to the place, you will arrive at the place that I've always meant for you to be. You'll be at a place where you're at ease, where you no longer have to wander. You no longer have to wonder. It's just be this firm place, this place of rest from which you can flourish and live your life. Now, the promised land, the land of Canaan was not like Egypt. I mean, Egypt was this glorious empire with, with, with gold and, and uh, festivals and kings and might and power. And it was so shiny and it was so attractive but it was also a ruthless place, a place where people were put into slavery and forced to work and where people were killed. And God said, that's not my place for you. My place for you is here, in a place of rest, in a place of peace. And that's the kind of rest that Jesus offers. It's what the, the late Tim Keller calls the rest behind the rest. Because you see, we live in a culture that says, you have to work. You have to push, you have to strive, you have to lean in, you have to keep going all the time. There's always this work that's taking place because what you are striving for, what you ultimately are working for is, is for a sense of self-worth, for self-esteem, to justify yourself, to, to, to save yourself, to heal yourself. And sometimes that pressure to work is put on us by our parents, by our family of origin. Sometimes it comes from the culture around us. Sometimes we put it on ourselves. But it means that there's never truly a rest. Even when you're playing, even when you're resting, you're still always in the background trying to prove yourself. Prove, prove your worth. And that kind of work, that's, that's draining, isn't it? I mean, that's exhausting. That, that's soul-crushing kind of work. And you can never escape that work. A day off doesn't do that. A holiday doesn't do that. A new car doesn't do that. A new home doesn't free you from that escape. What, what you need is a rest for your soul that comes from finding grace. What, what you need is to arrive at the place that God has called you to and be like, ah. This is, this is where God has called me. I'm at ease in this place. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to wander. I'm not constantly comparing myself to others. I'm just where God calls me to. It's what Jesus famously says in Matthew. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, it's grace, a place where you don't have to prove yourself anymore because you know you're accepted by God himself. A place where you don't have to heal yourself because you know that you can't anyway, but God is going to bring the healing in your life. A place where you don't have to save yourself because God has done the saving for you. 
And, and, and it becomes a place that Jesus invites you into. It becomes this, this firm foundation. Which, from there, which allows you. From there, you can go and work hard. You can seek to succeed. You can do your best at all kinds of things. You can take risks. Because if you fail, who you are, your sense of identity is not crushed. And if you succeed, who you are is not overwhelmed by the success that you experience in your life. You know, I don't have to prove yourself because you know that you're deeply loved. Because Jesus chose you. He pursued you. He, he picked his way through the crowds and said, I want to heal you. I want to give this into your life. And if you allow him, he will give you that rest for your soul. This is the last point, and that's this. The grace God, it's the grace of God that allows you to find rest. All the money, all the fame, all the power, all the accolades are not worth it if you don't have a deep sense of rest in your lives. It looks so attractive from a distance. It looks so shiny. But the fact of the matter is up close, it's wearying and soul crushing. It's a graceless, unforgiving way to live. In a world where there is so little grace, the place to find grace, the place to find rest, the place to find hope and fulfillment in your life is in Jesus. And it's in that grace that you will find life and find it abundantly. So turn to him and allow him to bring healing into your life. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are such a good God. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus and that he came not to, not to put pressure, not to bring all kinds of rules, but rather to bring healing, to bring freedom, to bring life, to give us grace. And Father, would we find our grace there? God, would we genuinely seek the healing that Jesus offers in our life? God, would we know the fulfillment and the hope and the peace that comes from knowing Jesus? And God, if there are people here today who don't know Jesus, Lord, would they, would they say yes? Lord, would your spirit just continue to pursue them? And Father, for those who do know, for, for, for us, Lord, would we say yes, God, I want more healing. I want freedom in this area. And so I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to allow you to work in this area of my life because of what you want to do. So we thank you. We bless you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today. I want to send you out with these words from the writer of the Psalms. He says this, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. We serve a good God, a God of grace, who's at work in your life. So rest in that. Trust him. Lean into him and allow him to give you rest in your life. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.